0: Hi, I'm Victor Milligan.
1: And I'm Jennifer Isabella.
0: Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Joseph Blanketship, senior analyst at Forrester to discuss the current world of inside threats. Welcome, Joseph.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Joseph, there has been a significant amount of attention applied recently to cybersecurity, whether you're considering what happened in the U.S. election, whether you consider some of the malware issues out there but there has been some fairly press-grabbing items, and the one I'll reference here is is Alphabet and Uber, where actually it was inside threats that caused the item. Could you give us a sense of where we are in the universe of inside threats?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't think this notion of insider threat is new. What I do believe is we've got a renewed focus on insiders because of some of the headline-grabbing events you know, like Alphabet and Uber, uh, and the lawsuit there, as well as what we've seen coming out of the government with actors like Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and uh, most recently Reality Winner, you know, really grabbing headlines and you know, focusing some attention on this issue.
0: One of the dynamics of WikiLeaks and of Reality Winner others was there is actually a market to either both exploit or monetize that data. And so this idea that it's not just simply theft, but it's the ability to, in a fairly liquid manner, to monetize that, that does feel like it's something that's different in today's world.
2: Well, that's definitely different. I think that you know, goes to the underlying idea that data has become currency in a lot of ways. You know, if we look at you know, what's most valuable to a lot of companies now, uh, that actually may be data and not necessarily hard assets and when you've got data, you know, sort of by definition, it's fairly liquid and easy you know, to move that data from one place to another. And that's, you know, very much the underpinnings of our modern rec- digital economy.
0: So one of the dynamics that we've been looking at Forster is the emergence of digital platforms. And to your point on data as a currency, in these digital platforms, data is the is the pieces that keeps these things moving. And so you have companies forming very complex ecosystems which are highly dependent on the trust among them, meaning that in the concept of inside threats, anyone in that partner ecosystem is both a friend or, in the case of inside threats, a foe to that. How much is this starting to rise to the fore because these ecosystems, which are at the early stages of development, really are expected to dominate the economy going forward, both on the B2B side and on the B2C side?
2: I think it calls trust into question, right? We really have to feel a trust factor when we're dealing with a business partner, a vendor, or perhaps maybe it's a contractor that we bring in for a a special project. That's why we've seen a real focus, especially uh, from risk organizations, on understanding what that third-party risk looks like when we bring on new partners, new vendors. Uh, etc., to understand what is their ability to secure the data that we're responsible for. Because after all, even if we are working with an outside partner, it's still our data and we're still responsible for the security of that data.
0: Yeah, one of the examples that comes to mind is this idea that the data coming from an an airplane engine is no longer simply maintenance, but in fact may actually yield a, a view of pricing if I'm going to do sort of uh, air miles as my basic premise of pricing versus the selling of the engine. So this idea of what the data actually is signifying, it does bring into attention the higher value of that data that I might have access to.
2: Yeah, most definitely. And not even just the value of the data, but also the ability perhaps to manipulate that data, either to cause harm or to uh, use for some, some sort of a fraudulent purpose. So it's really also about the integrity of the data that we use and the decision making that we uh, that we do.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of—I mean—I think to Victor's example brings into question how some emerging tech affects the level of risk. So whether that's the Internet of Things or AI, you have you know these places now where data exists that they didn't before. So that's just another essentially attack surface, right? For um, that insider threat?
2: Most definitely. You know, uh, I think that also goes back to what we were talking about before with sort of the liquidity of data, if you will, even if you haven't sold it and turned it into currency yet, you're still able to move it, uh, you know, fairly easily uh, with things like cloud environments. Now I don't necessarily even have to have a physical asset like a USB stick or a floppy disk if you're as old as I am, right? You don't have to actually have that physical exchange. Now I can, you know, either email it, which is sort of a you know, old-school method for transferring data, or I can drop it into a you know, Dropbox account or any sort of a cloud storage and then make it available to somebody externally. So it's become very easy to move uh, this data around. And if you're not looking for the way this data is moving around and finding patterns, then you may not be able to actually detect anything that's untoward.
0: You know, we talk a lot about data within the ecosystem, and sometimes that sort of harkens the idea of structured data. But in this world of video and people videoing each other and putting on YouTube or putting Instagram or emails, this whole universe of of semi-structured or unstructured or any structured data now becomes vulnerable as well. And I bring that up because part of that data is used in the context of a social watchdog. We've had some discussions about this idea that the reputation of a company is currently sort of, it's under the lens of external people for their social behaviors and their social norms but it's also equally under the lens of internal people. How much is that part of the, the thought process of this and, and why that this should rise more to um, someone really defending against these kinds of threats?
2: Yeah, I think it becomes a bit of a question around, if we're looking at people who may have a, uh, a grudge against an executive or against the company, you know, it may behoove us you know, to kind of understand that behavior before it, before it happens. One of the things we see uh, in researching insiders is that they usually have you know, certain leading indicators that indicate that they're going to take an action like that. Uh, they're disgruntled. They're having uh, arguments with, with coworkers or managers, or perhaps they're in social media posting negative things about the company or about a specific manager.
0: This is the example of Glassdoor and other like entities, which can be used both as a fair environment to provide transparency, and in some cases an unfair environment to settle a grudge.
2: Absolutely, but just consider, though. You know, if I'm a disgruntled insider, uh, I could perhaps you know use some internal knowledge I have of inner workings of the company. If I share that externally, I either embarrass the company or you know an individual executive or both. And could potentially you know, cause some, some real harm that way. But one of the companies that we researched while we were working on our hunting insider threats report, one of the reasons they spawned up their insider threat program is they had an insider that used internal information to, to try to embarrass uh, one of the executives at the company in the media. Right? So it became a really important endeavor for them to make sure, hey, we have to protect our executives uh, from this kind of a malicious behavior by a potentially disgruntled employee.
1: So, Joseph, this sort of feels like there should be an emphasis on the monitoring of employees, whether that's in an automated fashion or or otherwise.
2: So yes, I do believe it's necessary to uh, you know do some degree of employee monitoring, especially when the firm you know holds information like personally identifiable information, healthcare information, payment card information, maybe bank account uh, information, or if you've got you know really uh, valuable intellectual property and that. Applies to just about every firm you can imagine. It's also a matter of protecting executives, especially if we've got executives that are outspoken in the media, or they can become targets for certain political groups or activist kinds of, kinds of groups. So when I say you know monitoring employees, you know, that's you know really monitoring my corporate uh, assets that my employees may be using, things like email, things like employee uh, or employer owned social media handles. Uh, any data repositories that employees have access to. But it's important to let employees know, know, hey, we are monitoring these and these are our acceptable use policies. And if you fall outside of acceptable use, there could be consequences to you. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that maybe we want to monitor everyone's uh, social media accounts outside of work unless they are talking about the employer or they're in talking about specific executives at the employer. And we can, you know, set up those kinds of uh, searches. So we're looking for mentions of the, uh, of the company or mentions of executive names.
1: Yeah, but in the, in the world of talent and, and fighting for talent, I mean, that definitely feels like a balancing act, right, with the employee experience and, and that dynamic in the market today. So how do, how do leaders deal with that?
2: Well, I think it's really about setting the expect, expectation uh, with, the, with employees Uh, You definitely don't want to be big brotherish, you know, where every time you click on something you get some sort of a screen saying you've been reported to your manager. You set the reasonable expectation uh, that your actions are going to be monitored because we have valuable data here, uh, and we're protecting not only our company's valuable data, we're also protecting our employees from being accused of things that perhaps they did not do uh, and protecting, you know, potentially the health of the company. If We look at some of the large data breaches we've had that, you know, were not necessarily caused by insiders, but there has been real impact uh, to, you know, the company and the health uh, of the company, you know, going forward.
0: So, Joseph, what is the percentage of risk that's at play right now, which is if you look back a year or two years, whatever the time frame is, what percentage of the actual threats were based upon inside threats versus strictly outside threats? What's the magnitude of the problem?
2: Well, if you we look at uh, our 2017 uh, business ethnographic survey for security. fifty four percent of the respondents who said that they had a data breach in the previous year said that they were the result of some sort of insider incident. And that was uh, you know, broken down about half and half between malicious actions, which were forty eight percent of the of that stat, and then accidental misuse, you know just either policy violations or somebody you know perhaps losing a company asset, like a computer, a, a USB stick. Uh, et cetera. So it's a fairly significant you know, part of the uh, part of data breaches and part of the risk that companies face, you know, you know, comes from these kinds of inside incidents. Yeah,
0: And it does seem, I guess, to your earlier point that there is significant attention, meaning money and resources applied to external threat. And yet when inside threat appears to be, in some cases, at least a sizable part of the risk, that there needs to be some equal attention paid to understand and then mitigate inside risks.
2: Yeah, you know, I think you can liken it to if you if you're still like an old fashioned person like myself, and you have a on occasion uh, to go into a retail bank, right? You go to the retail bank, you know, there's a there's locked doors, there's cameras on the outside watching people come in. Uh, depending on the, the nature of the bank and where it is. There may or may not be a guard there you know, watching the people who come and go. And then there's a series of cameras and safety measures inside as well, right? We've got a vault where we keep the money. We've got locked drawers where we keep the day's cash on hand. And then if you look up directly above the tellers, there are cameras focused on what the tellers are doing, and there's cameras focused on what I'm doing as an individual coming into the bank. So it's really monitoring all the behaviors that go on in a bank. So if we find that something's missing, then we can backtrack and figure out you know, was it an outsider who came in, or is it an insider uh, doing something untoward?
0: So, Joseph, you mentioned healthcare earlier, and I imagine that the healthcare risk is slightly different, which is you have electronic health records of celebrities, executives, or anybody that is moving across very complex health networks, meaning that it's exposed to many and can be used, again, for untoward purposes. And I assume that that, that industry will be paying very close attention to inside threats.
2: Yeah, one of the things we saw you know, several years ago, especially, you, know, you mentioned electronic healthcare records, but you know, any sort of uh, you know, patient care database, et cetera, but we saw where people were trying to use their insider access when they knew a celebrity was in the healthcare facility, uh, they would use that insider access to access the healthcare information uh, to see why that celebrity was there. Uh, and then in some cases, that was actually shared or leaked outside to media agencies. That's a huge violation of the celebrity's privacy, and it uh, puts the healthcare facility itself at risk you know, for you know a lawsuit from that individual as well as you know, things like a, like a HIPAA violation. And in the world of uh, GDPR, where we're really focused on individual privacy, you've got to think, if I've got a member or an employee of the healthcare facility that is not an actual member of the healthcare team, they should not have access to that clinical record to understand why that celebrity is in the healthcare facility. And they should definitely not be sharing any of that information externally with family, friends, and most certainly not media outlets.
0: Yeah, it calls to mind that one of the changes that might be afoot is that there's such an immediate market to monetize this kind of information, whether it's financial or social or, in this case, health. I mean, the idea that you can go from theft to payback in such a heartbeat must be a trigger that people have to be paying attention to.
2: It's one of the things that I feel that is leading to people doing these kinds of things, right? Uh, And I use the analogy quite a bit of uh, a, a jewelry theft, right? If I go in and I steal a bunch of diamonds from a jewelry store, now to actually turn those diamonds into currency that I can go spend, I have to find someone who's willing to buy my stolen diamonds and knows how to you know, move those. So, you know, if you watch enough old movies, they say, we've got to find a fence for our diamonds, right? But now it's become really easy to find the so-called fence for our data. Uh, it's really a matter of a few clicks on the Internet, maybe a few, you know, well-phrased Google searches, uh, et cetera, to go find people on either the dark web or in other channels that are willing to buy the data from me.
1: So you had mentioned GDPR in your previous statement, and it it feels like sometimes insider threats are things companies don't like to talk about, the fact that they exist or have had a breach from an insider. But now with GDPR and and the fact that breaches need to be reported within 72 hours, It feels like, you know, in 2018, we'll be hearing a lot more about this.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right about people not wanting to talk about this. This is like airing our dirty laundry. It's saying that we have somebody on our team, right, a trusted insider that has done something to harm us. Right. So we don't like talking about those things. It's embarrassing. And so, you know, if we don't have to disclose it because it's small or it's internal, we can handle this as an internal investigation, most of the times we don't ever find out about it. You know, we don't typically have a lawsuit. We don't typically go to law enforcement. But now, you know, with things like GDPR saying that, hey, if you have a uh, a disclosure of private data or you're, you know, opening up somebody to a privacy uh, violation, now you've got to talk about it. Uh, it's going to put that much more emphasis on making sure that we're you know, treating that data as it should be and making sure that our insiders are doing the things that they're supposed to do.
0: That kind of makes sense because if you disclose the lack of internal controls, you're disclosing that to investors that might lose confidence in your company. You're also disclosing it to bad actors on the outside who could exploit those same poor controls. I mean, it, there is a certain, uh, other than the social embarrassment aspect of it, you are signaling to two communities something that you probably don't want to signal. I mean, it does make sense that
2: you would not hear much about this. Absolutely. Uh, and especially, you know, kind of, as you said, kind of highlighting, you know, here's a way that someone was able to get to one of our employees it makes you wonder, you know, how many other people are there like that?
0: So we have an environment now where outsourcing is, is common business, where the rules of engagement are relatively clear, independent of whether it's, Offshore, near shore, or onshore type of outsourcing, and the the penalties or the risk that the outsourcer would carry was clear. So there would be some sort of mitigants implied within the contract. And now we move towards a gig economy where you have a much more freewheeling freelance environment out there, where your insider is coming and going at a constant pace. I mean that must that must exacerbate risk here.
1: Yeah, and I'm just going to chime in. I think a good example of this is IKEA acquiring Rabbit, right? That's a perfect example of the gig economy coming to life and coming to bear today.
2: I, I think it does. And for the reasons that you, that you laid out, it, as well as, you know, the fact that we may not necessarily have a really robust uh, process for bringing on, you know, uh, contractors in the gig economy. So it really kind of falls on to companies to look at what their policies are around bringing in outside contractors. Perhaps you know, really reviewing that uh, with their legal personnel and perhaps their HR or placement personnel that are bringing in contractors, because there's a couple of things there. One, the contractor has got to understand, you know, their role and what the expectation is of maintaining, uh, you know, privacy or secrecy, uh, and what the accepted use while they're. while they're employed, is there's also the matter of understanding the background of the contractor that we're bringing in, and making sure that 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 person you know has our best interest at heart when we bring them in by you know making sure that they don't have anything in their background that would make us suspicious of their intent. Then there's another aspect of controlling the access to data that the contractor has. Does the contractor have access to more data than they need to do their job? If so, we need to dial that access back and make it you know, really appropriate for whatever the contractor is brought in to do, and then monitor what the person is doing. You know, are they doing the things that we, that we brought them in for? Uh, are they trying to access data outside the scope of their job? And if so, why are they doing that? Right? Is that within the context of their job, or do we really need to take a closer look at the behaviors of that contractor and understand a little more about what they're doing?
1: so joseph i mean who plays a role here it sounds like based on what you're you're talking about it's it's not just squarely the security and risk folks but legal and hr and i mean it's a a cross-functional team
2: it's definitely a cross-functional team and i really do believe that it has to come from the top down a lot of the inquiries that i get from users uh, that are you know concerned about insider threat, or they're thinking about bringing up an insider threat function. Uh, they're being that's happening at the request of the board of directors. The board of directors has said, you know, hey, what are we doing about this potential this potential risk category? And many security leaders say, you know, that's not really part of our purview. And so it makes the board of directors go back and say, wow, we've really got to look at this. We've got a lot of people here. access to really sensitive information, we may not really know what they're doing with that information. Or, you know, a lot of times it also happens because we've had an incident internally and now we feel like, wow, we we dodged one bullet and we need need to make sure we've got a handle on this, um, you know, for the next particular, you know, potential incident that could come up.
0: This feels like the same way someone would trigger internal audit. When you you have a significant breach or something happens, the board has to come and make sure that, again, the controls are there.
2: I think it's very similar. Uh, one of the reasons we have a lot of the internal audit you know, functions that we have, we have the anti-fraud uh, you know, capabilities that we have, is it's a response to the incidents that we've seen, a response you know, to seeing people misuse uh, you know, their, either their access or, or their internal knowledge to, you know, to gain some sort of an advantage. And then we say, well, we've got to create controls around that. If we have controls, then we need to test and audit those controls to make sure they're working.
0: So Joseph, you said something very important in this podcast, which is data is now a currency. And that's going to be even more true in a more of a platform economy to which we're heading. And there has been significant focus on the external risks. And this podcast has sort of flipped it on its head and now looked at the inside threats, which to your data is a pretty sizable part of the pie. So if I'm an executive, what does it mean to me in terms of both understanding and then mitigating these threats?
2: Well, I think a big part of this is not only understanding the motivations of the insider. You know, are they financially motivated? Are they more motivated by revenge? You know, are they trying to get back as a company or a manager or coworkers that mistreat or have a, they have a perception of i being mistreated as an insider. So am I doing something harmful or just to financially uh, enrich myself? And then not only, you know, kind of understanding those motivations, but also understanding all the things that I have to protect whether that's you know data that someone can monetize or if it's my system that someone could sabotage or damage so it's really about knowing my insiders knowing their intentions and also knowing what i've got to protect and then building strategies to protect that data and monitor the access to it
1: thanks for joining us today joseph yeah. thank you joseph
2: absolutely my pleasure thank you
1: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.